Okay, um, hello everyone and welcome to Critics Live. Uh, my name is Naeem Kapadia. Um, now Critics Live, for those of you joining us for the first time or attending this, um, this format for the first time, is basically a program organized by Arts Equator. It is a platform for theatre reviewers to discuss productions, usually right after watching them, with a live audience. Now we're doing this for the first time as a live radio chat in collaboration with Channel News Theatre. Um, and today we will be discussing the M1 Singapore Fringe Festival with the theme the Helpers. This ran from 13 to 22nd of January this year, um, covering a total of eight productions, five local and three international shows. And we will be speaking about three of those productions tonight, which are Being by Way Collective, OK Land by Circle Theatre, and The Essential Playlist by The Second Breakfast Company. Um, so just before we jump in, a quick round of introductions. I'm joined this evening by fellow theatre reviewers, Matt Lyon. Hello. And Lee Shu Yu. Hi, everyone. Tonight, we're going to start by discussing um, Being by Way Collective. And Shu, would you like to maybe tell us a little bit about this production? Yeah, okay. Hi, everyone. This is Shu Um yeah, I'll, I'll give a short introduction of Being or Sitai by Way Collective. Um, it's about a character, X, caught in a cycle of dreariness and one day, along with everyone else in the city, he falls asleep at 3.30pm and they all have the same dream of the sea. Uh, now the dream takes us on a journey of discovery, so into the depths of the ocean, to the story of a two-headed fish who consumed everything, uh, to a peaceful beach, and then all the way back to X waking up again where he fell asleep in his home. Uh, and the play uh, is described as exploring the relationship between man and sea and what it means to be an intricate part of nature and thus discovering how to be at ease in the sea of life. So I took that last bit from the synopsis. Uh, yeah, so that was the play. Um, it was only 15 minutes long, if I remember correctly, and it was quite short. It was quite succinct. Um, but actually, despite of all of that, I, I, I was actually really moved by it. Uh, I resonated very strongly with the initial predicament of like, you know, the fatigue, repetition and dreariness in, in the first scene where uh, it was being set up that like, you know, this person was obviously kind of having the same kind of day, a, day in and day out, right? Um, and of course, donning a mask and all of that. So there was a lot of, um, I, th I think it mirrored a lot of what we uh, go through these days with the pandemic and stuff. But I think what really charmed me was um, the staging elements of the work. So the spatial design, um, the really atmospheric lighting and that stunning soundtrack that kind of underscored the whole piece. Uh, really kind of gave me that sense of immersion. And I really also appreciate that the use of the different objects. So I have a soft spot for the use of objects uh, in place. Um, so yeah, that, that's just a short overview, I guess. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to talk all about it at this point. I want to maybe hand it over to Matt or Naeem. You guys want to share what you thought? Sure. I also like the sound and the design. The issue for me is that it was too much of a blank canvas. I think you said you responded to the fatigue at the start, but the fatigue for me was more of a just not really doing anything. And even as the play went on, the protagonist did not do an awful lot. I think there were hints at maybe a Beckettian repetition and maybe even a little bit of Arto's kind of transcendental joy, but they were very brief and not very impactful. And what I found myself mainly thinking was, I'm watching children's theatre, but they've forgotten to put the main actors on, and the main actors actually had all of the story. So instead, I've got this one guy who was just in the background of all the scenes, and now he's got to carry all of it. And I guess that explains why, despite the fact that it's so spare and there's only one actor, it's so well lit and well designed and the sound is so nice because they were expecting to support a full production, but only one guy turned up. I don't know. What do you think, Naeem? Um, Look, I think for me, um, it was one of those shows where I think the critic in me was trying to place meaning on it. So I found myself quite frustrated at the start because I was trying to figure out 
what this story was, who this X character was, um, what he was trying to do, was he originally supposed to not be a human, you know, all of that. But I think the more I started to just immerse myself, as Shu says, in the production and just let it wash over me, the more I was able to appreciate it. I think the first few minutes were a little bit tiring for me because he goes through the same repetitive motions, you know, being literally weighed down by the physical world, right? He's wearing a mask, he's wheezing, he's having difficulty moving his objects, but he finds this joy and release in the embrace of the ocean. And there's that wonderful physicality. And I think for me, the best way to appreciate this was just kind of seeing it not so much as a play, but kind of as a physical performance of sorts. And there is a, a, a strong performance by, by Neil Haibin, who, who was the, the person who had both written and, and performed this, this show, and obviously aided by that technical elements as well. I think he was able to show this kind of balletic charm, um, childlike, whimsy even. Um, and I liked the changing tones. You know, it was pensive and melancholy and joyful. And I think the other thing for me was that I had never seen a show in the Esplanade Annex. Um, I think I've seen one show before from the Fringe Festival, but one that showcased its full capacity and I think the lighting really helped to show the depth of that space. I think there was a scene where they introduced this two-headed monster and he was sort of dancing around and there was just a lot of um, wonder I guess in just kind of manipulating that space. It it it, it felt quite um, you know immersive to me. So I think after a while I began to not pay a lot of attention to the surtitles and what they actually meant and just to watch the show and let that whole feeling of rootlessness or joy or whatever just just kind of take hold of me. I kind of wanted to add to that also because I noticed that I was sitting quite up close um, and there were a few other rows behind me so you know it was really quite immersive for me. I could pay attention to the small elements um, but I imagine you know whatever I had gone through was pretty much like a 3D short film. But if I had been sitting in the back rows, it really might have looked a little bit more like a picture book to the audience. So I, I think that that closeness gave me the opportunity to appreciate that like, you know, shimmering of the tinsel. I heard the rustling of it add to the soundscape. And I could really observe like his facial expressions, which um, to me was a lot more of the dialogue in a way, like dialoguing with his situation or the environment more so than, you know, just just seeing that there was one person in a big space. So I think maybe that closeness benefited me in some way. I'm in the strange situation of agreeing with everything you say, but in the most minor possible way. Like you say, it washed over you, and I say, yes, it was a lukewarm, underpowered shower. It was fine. I didn't hate it, but I it was so well packaged for so little content. It was like a box inside a box inside a box. Really nice, simple, but really nice staging, lighting. And then you said balletic charm. I can't really give you balletic charm. He was just kind of a, a normal guy wandering around. And okay, he wandered around in a moderately interesting manner for about 45 minutes. But using the word balletic on that, it seems a little bit much to me. I don't know. Defend your balletic name. I mean, I think there was there was um, a real attempt to engage the audience, and I think you you have to also admit that, like you know, it is not easy to be on stage by yourself um, for that length of time. And you know, he had to kind of convey so many different emotions. Um, I, I mean, obviously there was the dreariness of the material world and everything in that initial you know that initial few minutes and everything. But then obviously once he comes in, there's this childlike whimsy. I think the scene, which at least on the night I watched them. Um, resonated quite quite well with the audience was when he was cooking a variety of seafood and people were giggling and you know there was just this was quite charming you know I remember he was fishing and you know people would throw in like a crab or something like that I mean it it felt childlike I think someone mentioned child theater and you know yes it could have been that but perhaps that was what we needed and I think you mentioned about the point of it all I think one of the reasons for a fringe festival is is perhaps for a show like that to be given its space. Because, you know, again, and I, we can come back to this topic, but, you know, 
for me, a fringe festival is where you want to perhaps be challenged with something slightly unconventional, not that full package traditional play. And we've had a few of those. But for something like this, which is, you know, a little bit looser around the edges, which kind of defies its its conventional play linearity and all of mm. that. I, I, I think that there is space for that. I mean, I'm not saying that it was the best thing I've seen, but I'm glad that, you know, it was given a chance to be realized as a production. Yeah. I mean, I think it was the right kind of thing for a fringe and it did feel like a sincere exploration. We've got a question here from Ke Wei Liang. Who could that guy be? Um, what do we think the relation to the theme of the helpers was? What do you think about that, Shu? I'm going to be honest. I actually, while watching the show, couldn't see the relation to what the synopsis said it was going to be. So I couldn't really see like man's connection to nature. I thought nature was quite a, a device to explore, you know, man's coping and something like that. So in a way, like it was really hard for me to link it to that nature theme. But I could bring a bit of an explanation out to the helpers theme, you know, um, you know, hmm. maybe this character needed some help, you know, and nature was the help. Um, so I can, I can imagine that there would be, there would be some kind of reasoning for it. Why do we have to think of helpers as people, right? It could also be experiences, memories. It could be um, a particular kind of belief or faith in what you experience that kind of brings you through the everyday. Yeah. So that, that was that was how I made sense of its relation to the theme. Yeah, and I mean, again, this is this goes back to my point of trying to kind of ascribe meaning to it. And I think I was struggling with that. I was like, what does this mean? How is this about helping, etc.? But perhaps it was something a little bit more abstract. It was the idea of helping yourself um, about you know slowing down. I think there was quite a bit in the program. Um, about breathing and slowing down and you know there's this very strong emphasis on him not being able to breathe easily in the physical world but him being able to just kind of thrive almost when he goes into the sea so it's this idea of just kind of returning to your roots and I think rootlessness is a theme which you know appears in other shows I think it does appear in Circle Land definitely the sense of rootlessness which you feel and um Perhaps it was just this idea of being more grounded and finding and helping yourself towards a place where you are more grounded and more contented. And I don't know what the ending is meant to be. Was it all a dream? Or, But the point is, I guess, he he finds some form of inner peace. And I think that it ends on a, on a positive note, which I think is, is a nice thing to watch. Like you feel like, you know, look, someone's kind of not had a great time. They... They're able to connect with something that gives them a greater purpose. And, you know, I think if it leaves you with some warm feeling, I think the show has achieved its purpose. You know, I honestly, and I never say this, I honestly can't remember the ending. What happened? Literally what happened on stage at the ending? I think so, he, emerges, yeah. he emerges from the, from the sea um, yeah. and kind of wistfully looks back at, Oh, okay. I, 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 I mean, that sounds about right. How else to dis- I don't, I don't know how else to describe it, but um, that, that's, that's the sense I got. Um, yeah, I just thought you said it was about slowing down, and I just thought that if it, sl- if it had slowed down anymore, it would have fallen asleep. And I wonder if the reason I didn't was because they made us sit on the floor and my back started hurting. Yeah, I'm sounding so horrible. I didn't hate it, and it was fairly pleasant, but I think it thought it had a lot more point than it actually had. The childish... I wish they played a little bit more with maybe the responsibilities of the adult world versus the childish joy, which I think was in there, but I was just looking for something a little bit more high contrast. I don't mind subtle, but I think there needs to be a little bit more nuance in the content before you get to a level of subtlety that reads as anything other than a dullish gray. And apart from the design elements, that's more or less what I was seeing. Naeem's nodding. Yeah. You can't see yeah, it, yeah. but we no, can. No, Naeem's I'm, nodding. I'm, I'm nodding. No, I think that um, for me, one thing that I perhaps didn't appreciate so much was the voiceovers. Because I felt that if you had just let him, mm. if he wants to do this, it's it's a wordless 
almost a wordless performance, right? I think only at the end he says a few words. And if that had been the intention, just let music and light and physical action just just go on rather than having to keep telling us this overarching story about, you know, man and the sea and the beast and all of that. Like I felt that actually became more distracting for me. Um, so so I think it was it was probably it went against the intention. I, I think I suspect there were attempts to go for deeper themes, but I, I agree that they were not fleshed out. And after a while I stopped trying to search for those deeper themes and I just wanted it to be an experience. And I think I agree it was relatively pleasant. I don't think it was revelatory for me, but I do appreciate the work that went in. And I think, as you mm. said at the very start, I, I, I did really think that, you know, the sound designer, Jing Ng, and the space designer, um, Liu Hong Hui, Faith, um, they both worked together very well. And I should also credit the, the costume work by Liu An Ni and the dramaturgy by Daniel To. And I think all of these collaborators came together to tell a story that, you know, could unfold like a picture book that could be, experiential i think that is probably the word i would use to describe this show mm. not so much a linear play but an experiential tale perhaps of finding yourself why not i i would love to see this piece as maybe a 10 minute short film uh i think it would work know, much better in that medium i think you're absolutely really right well. yeah yeah something that really allowed the visuals to be properly curated and that uh didn't didn't outstay its welcome it could probably get some nice density from that Okay, so shall we move on to the next one? And a little bit of a, an apology there to Daniel Tio. I think uh, there was a little verbal slip there from Naeem. I am being informed by Nabil. It's Daniel Tio, the dramaturg. Apologies, apologies. Um, we, we, are, we are working with a, a lot of different um, notes tonight. So I uh, do yep. apologies to everyone who, whose name might be slightly mispronounced. But don't worry, Naeem's going to now mute himself and self-flagellate for the next 10 minutes, and uh, he can come back after this next play, which is, I believe, OK Land by Circle Theatre Thailand. OK, here's your punishment, Naeem. You can give us the synopsis on this one. I'm not going to mention the names of anyone. I'm going to leave no. that for you, Matt. <laughs> um, so, okay, land, okay, land. I'm going to tell you a little bit um, about the company, though, which um, you know I've taken for the program. But Circle Theatre is a fairly new company, um, founded in 2018, and um, um, from what I understand, it seeks to present um, Thai issues in a format where the audience tend to sit facing each other or in a circle, and hence the name. So, you know, encouraging dialogue and debate. But what okay, land is, I guess to strip things down is a good old-fashioned piece of political theatre. Uh, it's set mm. in a convenience store, um, everyday store that you would find in any neighbourhood and features two employees who are doing the, I think, an, an, a late night shift and a couple of customers who come in. And, you know, it appears to be a series of fairly mundane reactions, almost set up as a sitcom initially from what it appears, but it goes a lot deeper into a, excavation about the state of the world, of Thai society, of the pandemic, of politics, of inequality. And it, it I um yeah, it actually ticks off quite a lot in up slightly over an hour. And um I mm. thought it was actually um, a very solid piece of, of writing. Yeah, Shu, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I, I really like how straightforward the writing was. It did beat around the bush and you know, um, it really brought a lot of different characters into the picture to kind of intersect at the point of the convenience store, which was actually my favorite part of the play, right? Because it's it's kind of liminal, it's kind of like convenient, cheap, but then it's also owned by a mega corporation. You have all these people from different backgrounds and walks of life coming in and they have different things that they want out of the convenience store. Um, so I was I was actually quite like I was very excited by the way they kind of put these audience members into a space as if they were just watching from the sides of a convenience store. And they had the they had this little um, sound design of like the little beeps going off because the concept here is that you just take a card and you would uh, tap on the machines for whatever you wanted, whatever groceries or instant food that you wanted, and it would come down a tube. Um, so it was quite charming in that way. And, and the employees were also made to do a bit of a jingle 
I think it's like a salutation to the convenience store yeah. franchise, which was really weird and and dystopic in a way. Um, but we are also introduced to a, a pandemic or a, a disease that kind of running rampant outside in the outside world, right? And it's called zombie ants disease. It took me a while to understand that that was the disease that was going around. So, you know, they had these little jabs at like the tycoon and this pandemic that was just running rampant outside. And it really draws up a very sardonic outside world. And, and you you it just feels like peering into a little little box and just rattling these little characters around, see what happens when you put them together. So, um, yeah, I mean, that writing really just made things really accessible for me also to kind of like unpack all these different conversations that were happening. Yeah. Yeah. Just, uh, just to interrupt, uh, Jasmine Tan from TNS asks, is the self-flagellation going to be live streamed? And uh, I believe Naeem has an OnlyFans page, which he'll tell you about at the end. But uh, I really liked this play. I'm sorry, he's covering his eyes now. I really quite like this play. And it was a bit of a surprise for me because the sound quality was possibly the worst I've ever heard in a recording in my entire life. And, you know, obviously Singapore's rich and we can afford to do it well, but even on a five-year-old phone, and they appeared to be filming it to a relatively high visual quality on phones, there's just no excuse for doing it that bad. The audio levels were set so high it was clipping throughout. And then they tried to lower it down to a reasonable level by setting the most aggressive noise cancellation I've ever heard. So you all kind of get these noises underlying everything. And it was almost entirely unlistenable. So I just ended up turning it down and reading the subtitles, really, and just hearing little bits of the jingle every now and then. But regardless of that, I was pretty much engrossed with it. I thought it unfolded really nicely and it made its message well. I do have a bit of a preference for a slightly stronger and more uh, confrontational form of political theatre. My favourite play about, I guess, capitalism and why it doesn't work is Mercury Fur by Philip Ridley, which centres on the story of an older brother trying to protect his family by hosting a party for a rich banker who wants to torture to death a 14-year-old Vietnamese Elvis impersonator. And that sounds a little bit strange and extreme, but the way the play is managed, it just makes you realize that the situation we're in in late-stage capitalism is pretty much exactly as extreme and unlikely as that and contains that level of ridiculous cruelty. And I thought that, you know, the zombie ants disease for COVID and its symptoms were basically depression, right? Leading to suicide. Yeah, it's true. It probably needs saying. Is it the most interesting way to say it? Thoughts? Yeah, I think I found myself struggling initially why they didn't just talk about the pandemic as it was and why they had to kind of invent a whole different pandemic um, about the, the thing. But then again, obviously, there was this tycoon, which to me was a fairly coded reference to probably the, the monarchy um, and something which they probably could not say, um, you know, um, when, when they were performing it in Thailand. So they thought, let's just be coded throughout. Let's not talk about COVID. Let's not mention America. Let's mention Trump land. And let's not bother about sanitizing hands, but let's invent something where we sanitize our feet. And, you know, they just kind of ran along with the idea. And, you know, I was okay with it. I think it took me a while. But, you know, I think once you buy into that narrative, I think it was it was fine because I found a lot of, um, you know, despite being a play about Thai society, I think there's a lot which I think we in Singapore would be able to relate to. You know, the whole thing about the ever-changing rules. The, oh, you know, today you can buy alcohol at this time. Oh, tomorrow it's not sold at all. The foreign mutations, the sort of anti-vaxxers, um, there was a comment about, I think, the, in the the jingle, which they do, kind of reminded me of this world of surveillance we're in, you know, where we have to use trace together and check in all the time and all our moves are monitored and, and things like that. And then there's also the, the socio kind of socioeconomic inequality that has resulted, right? I think, um, um, I think uh, someone, Shu, mentioned it's kind of like about people from different walks of life. But the fact is, I think all of them are living in some fairly 
gated community or compound and they're all kind of middle class. But then the outsider is this older lady who comes in and she's really the person who's been kind of, um, you know, she's kind of, uh, the system has failed her. She's been trying to look for a job. Her family members are ill. She used to be an employee, but she lost her job. And she's one of the people who slipped through the cracks. And, you know, that that was um, a nice way to sort of like, you know, I guess really excavate the idea of how do we help an individual like that? Do we just film her on social media? Do we just give her money? Um, how is How should corporations help just dumping um, you know, produce into certain local districts and saying we've done our part? Um, or should there be a more, you know, uh, concerted attempt to improve the lives of such people? So I think for me, this play actually really dug its heels into that theme of helping others and seeing how we can do that in, in this kind of situation. And that made me think. Um, so I, I was able to actually see a lot of parallels with our life. And I actually enjoyed the fact that it was a very issues-based play. I was going to ask, uh, as William has done in the chat, uh, what do you think about the ghostly character who was carrying the video camera throughout? Yeah, I agree with you, Naeem, that really when it got into the heart and the social issues and what people actually want to say to each other in the in the environment that we pretty much have at the moment, then that was what it when it was at its strongest. And... So it felt like really it wanted to be a documentary, but it almost chickened out and then put these half steps away from reality, like calling it Trump land instead of America, or like you rightly pointed out, putting plastic bags on your feet instead of sanitizing your hands and wearing masks. And I wish really it had had a bit more of the courage of its convictions and maybe gone kitchen sink or gone absolutely crazy pants. And the ghost figure who appeared and only certain characters could see and turned out in the end to have been a student who died in a protest filming it, what was it, 10 years ago or something like that? Trying to make that the emotional center of the piece seemed to be a mistake because the starving auntie was really representative of a far more recent and uh, currently relatable damage which is happening if the inequities of the, the pandemic have has increased and there are people starving to death and there are people without work and obviously thailand's political situation is not the situation we have here so this may be a case of it being lost slightly in translation but for me i found that character baffling at the start and then when i worked out that he was supposed to be a ghost and what was going on um a somewhat unnecessary choice is is that the side you came down on Chu? yeah yeah i i really didn't know what to make of him and i didn't like it when they revealed oh he was actually a protester that died of course you know like what you said about the whole like cultural um resonance here maybe it's a bit different um, but it just felt like he was really out of place because there were other things to focus on that all the other characters were focusing on. And they had all their energies on trying to help the hungry auntie or trying to, you know, um, reason with the political and social inequalities that were at play here. But the character of the ghost was, it, up to the very end, people were still like, oh, you can see him? How come, how come only mm. these people can see him? You know, it, it was a device that kind of dragged on way too long for me and didn't seem to amount to much at the end. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I think, to be honest, I remember I was watching this show with someone else and I was saying, is that the videographer? Is that an overzealous audience member? Because, you know, I just honestly could not figure out who is this guy standing right in the middle. And I was like, oh, the blocking is really bad. And like, they have audience members, like, you know, right in front of the camera. And that's the sort of, and I, it had to be spelt out to us that this is a ghost. And then you're like, oh, Okay, if you say so. You know, I, I felt there was so much in the play, um, so many rich themes that they did not need that character. And as Matt, you rightly say, I think the older lady was the emotional anchor of this play. I, I like the fact that she was given her space to tell her story because she is obviously from a different, um, a different experience than all the other characters, you know, the architect or the food blogger or the student activist or just the you know, everyday convenience store employees. But I felt that having that ghost character and then kind of giving mm. him a bit of a resolution at the end felt 
a bit unnecessary. So it was a case of perhaps putting too many things inside the in the play. And, you know, within an hour, I think there's only so many stories you can truly unpack. Yeah, but I mean, some of the stories for me were just wonderful. We've talked about the convenience store, Auntie. But the manager of the convenience store as well, my favourite moments in the play were where he is basically on the phone line to corporate HQ for this 7-Eleven clone. And the voice of the actor who replied on the phone, obviously I don't speak Thai, but it was just the most perfect robotic delivery I've ever heard. And it just so immediately captured the faceless algorithm that is these corporations. And it was horrible. And I'm so, so glad because, you know, Naeem said I had to pronounce all the Thai names, but fortunately I don't because the program does not tell me which character was played by which actor, so I have no reason to read out those names. But whoever I know, Naeem is throwing his hand up in despair, but whoever it was who played Boss, the convenience store manager, just the way his, he became irrational and his anger built as he's speaking to this digital sociopathic presence on the phone it was frustrating and moving and true yeah yeah he was my favorite character i felt he really carried the the performance really yeah. well from the beginning where he's kind of like you know distant he's just playing the boss character and he's also talking to the employee joy to you know kind of like be 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 an employee basically right and then all the way to the very end where you i really didn't expect it when he got on the phone and he just broke in the midst of all the chaos like there was no reason to expect it but then he kind of finds his own voice or he kind of finds his own agency and i think i was quite pleased with the ending because of that um offering of like hope you know trying to break the cycle in a way or trying to just find a way out of out of the situation yes maybe he's a little bit more educated maybe he's a bit more privileged but i think he represents that character that you know is not is not one that is hopeless and it's not one that's kind of like giving up in the face of all of this no i yeah. agree, and I agree I, absolutely i think probably the theme of the helpers came across a little bit more directly in this one as well uh which i think especially when you're essentially buying in a production from overseas it does make sense to curate a little bit more carefully when it comes to the theme. So I was very pleased to see it. I just wish it had had better sound. Oh, my word. Yeah, and I mean, I think I honestly, if I had been there in the audience, I think I would have enjoyed this play oh, even yeah. more than I did because it's a wonderful immersive staging. I think there must have been not more than 20 audience members and you're right there smacking the action, you know, watching the cat. Um, you know, actors come in and scan things in your face. Yeah, and half of them seem to be filming it as well, which is a very <laughs> today thing to do as well, isn't it? Yeah, but I think the problem was also because the angle was slightly weird. So for those of us who were watching this as a video, um, the blocking did not feel great to me, especially when you have about five characters talking and overlapping each other. I think it felt really a bit of a mess to me at, in those scenes. And I think if I was actually in the physical space, I would have probably appreciated that a little bit more. It might've been an issue of the camera angle because I'm not sure whether this play was originally conceived to be filmed. It, it may have not been, um, but I think that was something that detracted perhaps from making it a truly immersive um, production. Yeah, I see what you mean. It was a little bit difficult to follow the momentum Sometimes, yeah. wasn't it? It's almost like they cut away to a, a completely different time or something. People just materialized. But I, I think that that's quite forgivable. I'm, I'm not too unhappy with that. Um, Wei Liang was made so happy by the constant OK door chimes that he can let go of the sound quality. To which Shu agrees and to which I despair with both of you and refuse to talk about this play anymore. Let us move on to the Essential Playlist. Yay, Crouchiers. So, the Essential Playlist was by the Second Breakfast Company from Singapore. And it followed the interactions between a group of social media creators who are trying to find out how they can respond to helpers, essential workers, 
during the pandemic and maybe share those stories, but maybe also not sacrifice their viewing figures and their ratios. And I'm pretending I'm a young person who knows what any of this means. Uh, one of the essential workers was a nurse and the other was a delivery rider. And we see how the social media influencers try to work with their stories in ways which veer from extremely trivial to possibly slightly less trivial. Fair summary, Shu? It's a difficult play to talk about, isn't it? It's a difficult play to execute as well, actually. <laughs> fair summary, fair summary, in all honesty. Um, I. I have a lot of feelings about this play and I don't know whether I've reached a conclusion on it, but like, I think The Essential Playlist is a show and is a concept that is very difficult to get right today because many people have very different thresholds for what social media, modern social justice activism can and cannot do. So I think it's one of those plays that's really like, you see what's your threshold and then you will decide whether or not you like it, whether or not it was effective. Um, to me, it was even a slightly backdated play already, I feel. Like, yeah, okay, Naeem is nodding and, and Matt looks like he wants to agree. Like, there's a lot of a lot of things that Matt wants to say about this piece. Um, but yeah, like the, the discussion here is the discourse on essential workers and non-essential workers has, I think, evolved and grown a lot since the report came out, right, in the news a couple of, how long was it? How long the has it decades, been? Decades, centuries. Yeah, it, it's been quite long now. And then, like, you know, stuff like social media and content creation has also gone under the spotlight with, you know, the NOC expose. And it, it does make this threshold a lot more layered, I feel. Um, so going in, I already had this kind of veil over my eyes and, and I had this feeling like, oh no, like it's going to be centered on content creators. I, I don't know what to feel about that, right? Because they're not the number one group of people that I feel like I want, want to empathize with if they were made the protagonist of the play. So it was really quite difficult for me to kind of engage uh, entirely. But I have to say that if the Second Breakfast Company wanted to go with this cheeky, distasteful, slightly cringy aesthetic, you know, and make me feel uncomfortable and make me have a very visceral response, I think it worked perfectly. I think it worked really well. I was having these goosebumps the whole time throughout because like I just couldn't I, I just felt so uncomfortable like watching them be pretentious, be fickle, think about going viral the whole time. I didn't like the character of Henry. He was so annoying. Uh so if that was what they were going for, I think, you know, like they succeeded really well. He was very spineless. Um and I think a lot of the times I couldn't tell what the characters were trying to fight for, especially the content creators. Yeah, so it worked. Uh, I hated the characters, and I also hate myself for identifying with them. Yeah, yeah. I'll just leave it. Know, if, if if you say a play is going to be successful in terms of how it triggers a reaction in you, then I think this definitely triggered a reaction in me because I was irritated about five minutes in. Um, you know, obviously, it's a play that I think, firstly, I found it. I think you mentioned that it's a bit dated. I felt that instantly. I mean, it's been one and a half years since the Sunday Times poll in June 2020. And why are we talking about essential workers in 2022? I do not know why. But in any case, if you do want to tell their stories, why are you centering it on content creators who are basically portrayed as entitled, irritating, and abrasive with little attempt made to distinguish them or provide any form of nuanced personality. Now, this could have been an intention to just make us kind of not like them as a bunch, but I just felt it was really, really grating. And unfortunately for me, I think the direction of the piece did not help. There was this jaunty, annoying soundtrack at the beginning, I think, which kind of plays on in every scene. It's almost peppy, and the whole thing felt like a skit to me. It felt like a parody, and I don't know whether I was meant to take it seriously at all. And 
the only bit where we have a bit of an emotional anchor are when we are introduced to the two characters, the, the delivery worker and the nurse. And they do make some authentic statements about, you know, these top-down government corporate initiatives and how they are a bit meaningless. And, you know, it obviously explores the idea of health. I will give it to them. They did tackle the theme. They talk about how you help these people. That's good. That's a tick. But if you do want to talk about these people, why not center the narrative on them? Why do we have to deal with these four unlikable characters for three quarters of the play and then have these good stories tucked away inside? So I think for me, I just found myself irritated because of the way it was set up and the mixed messaging. Um, and that just affected my ability to really to enjoy yeah. the play. And if you're going to irritate me in a play, I'm up for it, but I want to know to what purpose. And I could not see that purpose. I wonder if the play thought it was satire. There were elements of the design and the performance that indicated that. You mentioned the sound design. I can see that as satire in that it was an oversimplification of what is already simple when it comes to those boom boom tish kind of youtube generic backgrounds and you know it was played a bit too loud and a bit too long so all right i guess that that's a kind of a spoof or a skit as you said earlier was it shoe i think but again to what purpose like if it's satire then you should be punching up right you should be speaking truth to power and making power look as ridiculous as it should when it looks at itself in the mirror but we begin by finding out that artists and apparently social media creators uh, are not in a position of power because they have been dubbed inessential. So are we supposed to empathize with these deeply unpleasant people or not? If we're not supposed to empathize with them, why aren't they even more cartoonishly unpleasant? And why don't we have a bit more of a hero narrative with the actual essential workers? And it's funny because I think we all agree that the play came across as a little bit old fashioned, but we also probably, I'm guessing, couldn't fit it into a playwriting category because it doesn't play by the proper tropes. It just manages to feel like a slightly broken version of several different things. I do want to add that the reason why I feel like I haven't really come to terms with my feelings about it is because it is a very different angle from what a lot of us are used to in playwriting. Um, typically, you would write characters that you know you can identify with, you root with, you root for from the start. And I think, in a way, if if this was intentional by the Second Breakfast Company, right? And I have a feeling it is. Um, kind of centering these content creators provides us with a very different kind of dynamic or experience of theater. And I don't know if it's just my personal discomfort or maybe it's time for us to be challenged by these kinds of new tropes, these new arrangements of stories, um, these very, very current, but at the same time, very superficial issues. I think they're all part of society now and it's gonna be hard to avoid. It's gonna be hard to kind of like critique even um, the phenomenon that we, we have, that we see today. You know, because it, it it is superficial, but it also forms a huge part of how we interact with media, how we interact with storytelling, how the stats show up these days. Um, so at the same time, I, I do want to I do want to mention that I thought that that discomfort was effective insofar as to make me feel like, oh no, what am I doing with my voice? What am I doing with my creation or my creativity, right? What am I doing as a as someone who can echo or repeat or or share voices and stories? And I think that that the piece kind of worked in a very complex way to make me reflect on my own ability. But I was a little bit uncomfortable with also that conclusion at the end where they said that maybe it's better to let people tell their own stories because I feel like maybe that's a bit too much of an ultimatum. I feel like as storytellers, maybe we should just focus on, you know, telling stories sensitively with accountability rather than handing the mic over to essential workers to tell their own stories altogether. So I was a bit like, you know, I feel like it fell short of the conclusion a little. Yeah, I think when we're talking about the shallowness of this kind of, of fairly low effort social media, 
Yeah, absolutely. But did this really critique it or did it just replicate it and perhaps even water it down and put it in a medium in which it doesn't have its own advantages and comfort and the visualness that you can get on that 2D screen with, with fast cuts? So for me, it was a failure to properly engage with the shallowness. I know that sounds a little bit of an oxymoron, but I don't even believe that there are content creators that shallow, but equally, we seem to be asked to empathize with them, so I couldn't see them as a satirical kind of enemy figure. It didn't provoke the kind of reflection in me uh, that you're talking about, Shu, because for me, I don't think I ever would be that deliberately shallow. If I, if I see myself in, and I'm not accusing you of anything, but if I saw myself in that, I'd, I'd really have to look in a mirror for a long time. Yeah, and I think we've got a very interesting comment, actually, by, by Wei Liang, which I think uh, deserves to be heard. Um, so he says that um, he used to work as a food delivery rider himself, and there are valuable commentaries being made about the power dynamics of helping. And he was thinking about the scene where Sam is being ambushed by the lunch bunch with this chicken pizza, only for them to realize that she's vegetarian. And it says a lot about the motivations, how we help for self-gratification, or do we pause to listen to people on the ground? You know, I, I, I have to agree, that scene resonated with me as well. And I think there was another scene by Fatin, who plays the male nurse, um, the male nurse character um, who talks about, I think, all these corporate sponsors who give them products with their branding and wanting them to showcase it on social media. And, you know, that that they just kind of almost become like a publicity, a publicity kind of like guinea pig, really. So I think all those kind of like, you know, comments do resonate because like, you know, there are these people who just want to help just to tick a box and do their CSR or whatever it is, just fulfill like, that, that box-ticking um, approach, but what does it really mean to improve their lives of these delivery people, of other forms of essential workers? And I think those were the stories that I wanted to see elevated, but I felt they were buried in kind of a lot of vapid um, dialogue. And do they even need resonate. to be framed? Do they even need to be framed by that vapidity? Can't we just use theatre to go straight to those stories? I don't see the point of, as I think you said, spending 75% of the time with people who are unpleasant and incompetent. Not, not really seeing it. We have from uh, Juliana Cassim here, interesting point about the play being dated. I think it's worth remembering that applications for the festival open a whole year ahead. And these works are usually already in progress, bit difficult to try and foresee its relevance at that time. I think I recall reading in the program that the genesis of this was actually the ban on personal mobility devices and how uh, that might affect delivery riders, although, of course, then the pandemic happened and it, it changed to accommodate that. For me, though, the datedness of the play is not so much in that it's talking about the Straits Times Essential Workers article. It's more that the stagecraft of it is quite traditional, whereas for me, Being was a fringe show and OK Land was a fringe show, and this was little bit more like student drama, I would have thought. Something that's traditional, but not quite in control of its uh, mechanics. Yeah, anything else we want to say about this? The, the stories that were that were really there, we did get to hear a little bit about the nurse and the delivery rider in the end. Was there enough touching on that? Was there anything that we really could take away from that, do you think? I felt that it was a breath of fresh air when they were allowed to kind of like have their own space. Maybe that was the point, right? Building up to a point where we just wanted to hear their voices. Um, and then when they were allowed to take the main stage and, and say things the way they wanted to, it was awkward, It was, but it was heartfelt. And I think that breath of fresh air could be something that, you know, this piece, this, it, it, this piece works best when it is very genuine, I guess. It's not trying to be something it's not. Uh, and one and one really like one moment that stood out to me and I think a lot of audience members was when the nurse had to sanitize his hands for 20 seconds yeah, and there was just silence it was it was really funny it was very natural it was very organic and it's really just like out of the blue so I think it, it really does best when it, it allows itself to be organic rather than tries to be something it's not but then verbatim theater exists right why not just do that 
If we're all agreeing that we want to hear these voices and that the point of this play was to make you wait to hear the voices, why not just give us the voices? I don't necessarily think that the dramatic structure, which hid the good stuff from us for so very long, was worthwhile. Yeah, I, I have to agree, because I think all the points that we say resonated with us were essentially meant to be verbatim um, snippets, right? Yes. So, yeah. Why why do we have to deal with this structure? And I think that was I think some you talked about authenticity, Matt. I think that was the reason why so much of the play grated on me because it felt so inauthentic. That whole setup with the you know these entitled characters and you know but that probably was the intention. They're all equally entitled and going about their sort of you know um, um, you know approach to build their ratings and all of that. The whole thing just felt like a, a snazzy, meaningless. PowerPoint presentation about something which we don't want to buy in the first place, um, and then you wait and wait and wait till you get to the good stuff, and and you know I'm just thinking why do we not just listen to those stories? So it might have just been the messaging of it and the way it was structured, but I think that was what really affected like my ability to engage with it. I, I think there's still value in having some of these very farcical elements actually i do feel like there's that contrast to when we actually hear those voices i think i think maybe they were trying to build up to something like that where you actually see the juxtaposition between you know trying to tell somebody else's story and actually letting things take its course um i quite enjoyed several of these moments um i think something that's quite great thing probably is just maybe a little it's a little bit heavy-handed maybe the characters don't say exactly what they mean and that makes it very hard to just kind of like cut through the fluff yeah so i i, I do think there's actually a lot of like uh, value in comparing the inauthentic and the authentic you know all those words in quotations but in a way i i would have loved to see this piece kind of like have a bit more time i know i said it's a bit backdated but it probably needs a little bit more time to just kind of like ask itself even in those means of uh, even in those scenes of like content creation what is it actually trying to say yes indeed i wonder if we've got any questions just for the last few minutes uh, while we're finding any of those nabila says to me this was the second breakfast company showing the glimpses of how they grapple with their difficulties with dealing with this subject matter from an artist or privileged perspective the question that the panel seems to be disagreeing on is if showing those knots are completely unnecessary. And I think for me, yeah, I, I did mention that. But if we do want to show those knots, then I wonder why the content creators, there have to be so many of them who are basically identical. Like, surely one or two would do it. We were supposed to think for a while that one of them was a bad guy and one of them was nice, right? But their behavior indicated that they were both equally shallow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got confused at some point as well, because I thought they were on like different sides, and then they ended up being all really bad, all having really bad ideas. So I was like, oh no, yeah. I can't even empathize with one of you. <laughs> Which is a potential story that you can tell, but he, the one who was supposed to be nice was obviously and immediately bad. So it wasn't some kind of strange journey where oh he seems so nice but then he's evil after all yes this machine of social media is indeed going to eat us it was just the nurse character i think just think saying oh he's a nice guy and the entire audience i presume going no he obviously obviously isn't what are you thinking yeah well i mean um i guess one thing that might be um worth maybe mentioning is do we want to talk a little bit about the theme I think we've, we've touched on it, you know, little, uh, a little bit throughout this chat about the helpers and, you know, obviously the, the Fringe Fest will be moving away from a theme now in, in, in future editions. And is there a value of a theme? Um, I think there was this concept of fresh, fresh fringe in the past where you have these perhaps much younger companies doing shows and there'll be two or three of those productions and then the main body. And then now that's been meshed together this year into just one set of eight productions with, with an overarching theme. But the theme concept has also changed over the years. Um, I believe it used to be based on a work of art and, and this year it's based on a concept quotation, that sort of thing. I mean, what, what were your thoughts about that? Sean Tobin, who used to be the artistic director of The Fringe, uh, used to be my boss. And, Whenever 
the teachers were talking about what plays they'd put because we maybe have three plays that the year fours have to put on. He'd always say like, oh, we should, you know, we should think of a theme. And I'd be like, no, Sean, stop it. We have enough difficulty finding plays with the right cast size. We don't want to think about anything like that. But I do see the point when it comes to a fringe festival. It does give it that extra little bit of cohesion even though there is often a little bit of a stretch to fit so i tend to like a theme in a festival but i tend to like it to be something fairly concrete i remember one year when sean did um art and war and everything really was art and war but with a theme like the helpers whenever you open it to something a little bit more interpretive like uh, shu you were saying with being earlier and you were redefining that to explain how the ocean was a helper or something and yeah we can we can make those arguments but i tend to be a little bit of a purist when it comes to themes yeah and, and there's a comment that says from 2023 there is no steam i think that that's the point sorry if that wasn't mm. clear so we are moving away from a steam and and i actually am in favor of that because i think i'm doing exactly what you, you mentioned Matt trying to sort of force myself to fit everything into that theme and I read the synopsis and some of it is a bit tenuous sometimes and you know relationship with the theme I'm like okay if you say so but it's not going to fundamentally change my appreciation of the play so I think just having a collection of plays um, and without any theme that they're forced to kind of constrain themselves to might have some value. I think one other thing that I would really like to see, maybe not next year, but maybe in the fringe, you know, like further down the road, is that if there's no theme, then maybe we could also have a few more performances just to diversify the lot, you know, just to diversify the caliber of shows that we're watching, not necessarily to allow bad shows into the fringe, but to allow a more, a greater diversity of ideas so that more comparisons could be made. Because I think that, you know, having a theme explores different paradigms within that theme. But if we had no theme, then it would be very interesting to see the contrasts or to see the different directions that people could kind of take with their ideas here. So I am, I was actually quite fond of the theme at M1 Fringe. I think I looked forward to it. It didn't have that much of a uh, an impact on me in terms of meaning making and all of that, because I'm just kind of the kind of person that like, you know, would just watch a piece and just make sense of it as its own work. But I think that it would be really interesting to see what 2023 holds for us. Nabila asks, what is bad? What is a fringe? I have a long history of saying what is bad. <laughs> what is a fringe? I like to see something that you wouldn't see pandemonium do. And not that I dislike pandemonium, but they're basically the opposite of fringe. And so with the essential playlist, I could see pandemonium doing something like that, probably better, but I couldn't see them do being. So I'm quite happy, even though, you know, I'm not its greatest fan. It fits in the right category to me. If I'm going to see a fringe festival show and someone gives me being, I'm like, yep paid you your money and you gave me the thing. And I think uh, that's probably also true of OK Land, which even though it was kind of old-fashioned political theatre, I think it had enough going on with the staging to justify it being a little bit more of a fringe performance. Um, William, Pandemonium presenting Descendants of Eunuch Admiral at Fringe. I think you've guaranteed that I will have nightmares tonight. Thank you for that comment. I think, I think for me, a fringe is basically something that kind of takes you a little bit out of your comfort zone and makes you think and challenges you in some ways. And I look back at some of the fringe type of shows I've seen. I mean, the, you know, unconventional staging is one of them. Um, you know, um, we've had like audio tours and, you know, we've had like um, group activity type situations. I think there was some um, a treasure hunt of sorts, you know, these kind of like slightly unconventional ways of storytelling um, that you do not see in a traditional theatre space. Um, I think I, I look forward to that because that is exactly where you want to kind of, you know, expose yourself to something that is not quote unquote traditional theatre with a beginning, middle and end. Not to say that those kind of plays should not be at the fringe, but yeah, exactly. Um, so I think I would be looking forward to I think being challenged and kind of you know wowed in 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 different directions and I feel that 
this year perhaps challenged me a little bit less just because I don't think any of those issues were very new to me or were things that made me think significantly more about an issue than I already did. Whereas I think in the past, some of the shows I had seen had been a little bit more challenging in terms of their themes. In terms you know, of having said that, the thing we've probably been most missing lately in theatre is the traditional show. There's been much more opportunity to stage something a little bit fringy because so many of the standard rules of theatre are broken. You can't have full houses. You know, it's probably better if you all do stand in the back three metres apart. So for me, I, you know, theoretically, I guess I mind that maybe one of these plays didn't fit into my idea of fringe. But for me, it actually comes back to the other part of Nabila's question. What is bad? And I just wanted whatever they were to be better. I am all up for traditional theatre at the moment. Sit me in a packed auditorium looking at French windows and I will be over the moon. But I do kind of need it to be good. I think I think all in all, I had a really good time at the Fringe. Yeah, um, just personally, on, on the level of just going back to the theatre, enjoying stuff with people sitting by me, you know, and, and also just engaging on my own terms. I think whatever the case is with quality or writing and staging, execution, all of that, I think I just had a really um, good time because I think I really appreciated the interesting ideas that were brought to the table. So kudos to the festival and the creators. Yeah, no, I think nice. absolutely. I think it's always, always great to see new works. And thank you to all the creators um, um, for this year's Fringe. So I think just to wrap up, um, uh, thank you to all of you listeners um, for this chat. Uh, please do follow Arts Equator and Channel News Theatre. Um, and if you have the means to contribute, uh, please do. There will be some links that will be posted up on the channel shortly after we end. Um, do look out for um, future Critics Live sessions, um, hopefully where we all can see each other in the same space. Um, and yeah, I guess till then, thank you. Good night and see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.